If you have been joining with us regularly in worship at Cafe Church, you'll know that we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians um, and all the various bits of teaching that Paul gives to the early church at Corinth. And Alistair's been doing a fantastic job of unpacking some of that for us and putting it into our current context of 21st century Glasgow. For the two weeks he's away, though, uh, when myself and Callum were going to be taking the service, Callum and I met and looked at the next chapter, chapter 15, and decided that actually we were going to leave that one for Alistair to continue uh, <laughs> preaching. Now, just before you, you, you can erase the head in your Bibles to chapter 15, thinking, what thorny teaching issue is there in chapter 15? There isn't a particularly thorny teaching issue. It was more just, I don't know, Callum and I just weren't feeling it. We did, however both decide that we would spend, we would take a week to kind of pray and think about, well, what should we do on, on the Sundays when Alistair wasn't around? And in actual fact, we do feel this was of God. Uh, we honestly didn't just take what we thought was an easy way out because, well, I certainly don't feel this is especially easy for me. But Callum and I both at a moment when we then met up to meet and I said, I've had a thought. And he said, well, I've had a thought too. And it turned out we had a, exact, the exact same thought. So we decided it wasn't just us and perhaps there was something of the Holy Spirit in it. And our thought was, uh, something that Alistair had said around church worship, I think when he was referring to the way the, the early church worshipped in Corinth, and this idea that actually we should be sharing more testimonies here at church, that it's a good idea to learn from one another, learn from one another's stories, hear stories of what God has been doing um, in our lives. Because I certainly know, looking at the folks I know, stories of grace, of forgiveness, of redemption, of, of ongoing transformation. And it would be fabulous to hear more of those as we go on. And I'm sure for those of you that I don't know in the room, I'm sure you too have your own stories, your own journey um, with God. So Callum and I decided that actually we would use these two Sundays as testimony Sundays. And so what I'm going to do this, uh, this Sunday, in this service just now, is I am going to share some of my own story. And it's a story that will be familiar, or bits of it will be familiar to some of you here, because you actually walked alongside me in a lot of this journey last year. But I have to put a bit of context in for those who are visiting today uh, and wondering what I'm going to be speaking about. Uh, I was given the opportunity to share my story fairly recently um, at a church that I know quite well down in Ayr, and they actually gave my, um, gave my sharing time a wonderful title. Uh, I see I use wonderful in inverted uh, in quote, quotes there, because the title was uh, Walking with Jesus and Cancer. And I appreciate some of the visitors here are probably thinking, oh, so not what I signed up for today. Um, so let me just put a bit of context um, around that. Uh, I am the subject of one of the paintings around the wall here. Uh, I'm actually kind of hidden slightly behind the easel, but there's a painting over there uh, from our, uh, the gospel sketchbook that Ian Campbell, our resident artist, has been doing. And I am Luke chapter 12, which is entitled Do Not Worry. And if you looked at that painting earlier and thought you recognized me, you'll notice I have significantly less hair in that painting than I do now. And that's because that painting was done a year ago when I was going through chemotherapy for breast cancer. I'm going to share more about that journey uh, and about what I feel I've kind of learned in this past year. Uh, for those who've heard some of it before, I hope there's something new in what you're hearing today. Um, for those that are slightly dreading this topic, because I can appreciate that anyone talking about a disease like cancer, there isn't a single person that hasn't had their life touched in some way by this disease, because we all know people that have had cancer. 
I had a lady at the last church where I shared this kind of saying, do you know, when I saw the title, I nearly didn't come because she said, I thought, see if this is just going to be another one of these occasions where someone stands up and goes, oh, I just prayed and it was all fine and everything's great. And she said, my husband died of cancer a few years ago. And I thought, that's just not where I am right now. But she did the good grace to say to me afterwards that that wasn't what she felt I had done and that she felt I had not glossed over things and I had not simply said it was all just fine. Um, so I will hope you will stick with me and, and bear with me as I, as I share some uh, of what it is and take it that it comes from a good heart and a good place and it is certainly not my intention to cause any harm or wound anyone for whom this is a sensitive topic. So to put it into uh, the story, into a little bit of background, I joined this church uh, about four years ago now, and I joined it at a time when it seemed quite exciting to me. It felt like a really strong pull to come and worship here at St. George's Trow, and I had belonged to a church uh, in my whole, uh, where I live, out in Paisley, but I was also working for a Christian organization, and I was away quite a lot of Sundays speaking and sharing at other churches. And increasingly, it felt that I never really got the chance to, to go to my own church. There's somebody at the door, if someone could just, oh, no, they're going, quick, grab them. No. It's one of the challenges of city center ministry is, is like, do we leave the doors open or not? Um, so I'd felt the pull to come here because I felt God was starting a new thing here and I, I felt the co uh, call to be part of it. And one of the worship songs that I learned for the first time when I was here, and some of you that are more versed in contemporary worship are probably thinking, this is such an old song, but it really wasn't for me, um, is the song Oceans. Now, am I right in thinking, is that Hillsong or Bethel? Is it Hillsong? Hillsong. Okay, so, and it contains the wonderful chorus, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. And as I stood here in this service, um, in this church, singing that song, I felt this rising sense of excitement as to what God was doing in this place and how he could potentially maybe even use me in his service here. And I described it a bit to a friend, like it's a bit like being in a mountain path that's quite sort of, you know, goes around lots of corners and you don't actually know what's around the corner and you're sort of jumping ahead thinking, oh, what's next? So I stood here four years ago and sang that song with a great sense of excitement. There then came a moment where I had the opportunity to do a, a course, a one-year stu part-time study course alongside my job, and it was all about new expressions of church and setting up missional communities and looking at how to explore discipleship. And again, it felt like quite a risk to do that. It, it meant giving up a lot of time. It was an expensive course to do. And as I prayed about whether or not it was the right thing to do, again, the words of this, this chorus came to me. And I was like, again, I felt this. I'm going around a mountain path and I can't quite see around the corner, but there's potentially something hugely exciting here, Lord. I'm just going to step out in faith and trust you. Then I came to a point where I had an appraisal with my boss at the, the Christian agency that I worked with. And I was seven years in my role and really felt I'd kind of done everything that I'd set out to do. And my boss met with me to say, well, what can we do to make your job more challenging for you? And in the process of this conversation, actually, we came up with a plan. Let's make me redundant. Let's get rid of my job. Let's write it out. Um, and again, as I prayed about whether or not we should do this or whether or not this would happen, I sang these words. I was like, lead me where my trust is without borders. With slightly more trepidation this time, because it's quite risky to say, yeah, yeah, just make me redundant. It'll be fine. But I really was quite convinced it was going to be fine. This was me stepping out in faith and again, turning a corner and not knowing what was around the mountainside. About a month after my redundancy was agreed, 
and had been made public. I found a lump one morning in my left breast. And 10 days later, in between Christmas and New Year, I had it confirmed with a biopsy that it was cancer. And it was an aggressive form of breast cancer that had already spread to my lymph nodes, although thankfully it had not gone anywhere else in my body. The 1st of January 2017 was a Sunday, and I came here, I was here. In my mind, there was no question that I wouldn't have come to church that morning, but the news was not public, and nobody apart from Alistair and Ruth knew. And I really wasn't sure how I was gonna cope being here, because to say I was in shock would be a pretty massive understatement. I don't think I'd stopped shaking. I certainly had eaten very little. And one of the songs we sang that Sunday was Oceans. And I actually stood up at the back. I didn't, I didn't sit more in the, in the body of the kirk because I really wasn't sure how I was gonna cope. And I was standing up at the back, kind of where David is just now actually, and I had to sing these words, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. And as I started to sing that, I thought, I'm not sure I can sing this. <clears throat> and I started to cry. But I remember also feeling a strong sense of, well, do you know what? If I'm gonna sing this song, at times of great joy and excitement, when <clears throat> it's an exciting thing to think about, well, what's around this mountain path for me? I had this strong conviction that actually, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk now. I'm actually gonna have to sing this song, even when I don't know what's around this corner, even when I'm standing here shaking with fear and I'm so scared. So I carried on singing, take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. And I think I did mean it. I was pretty sure I did mean it, that this was going to be the biggest, the biggest challenge of trust that I'd ever faced in my life. But I really didn't want to let God down. I really did want to do this. I had no clue what was ahead, which was Probably, probably a good thing. What's that saying? God never gives you more than you can, you can handle. Um, well, you know, um, I don't know if that's, that's true or not. There were times where I certainly didn't feel like I could handle it. But I did go on a journey and quite a story. Is Casper falling asleep already? Really? If anyone's hearing snoring, I'd just like to make it clear. We have a little dog with us and it is Casper the dog. It's, it's not anyone else. That's fine. <laughs> We can prod him, prod him a week. Don't let him miss any, any good bits of, of revelation. <laughs> so yeah, I knew I was setting out on a, a journey of, of trust. Breast cancer is something. One in eight women will get breast cancer. Um, it's the most popular cancer in women, if popular is a word one wants to associate with cancer. But I knew nothing more about it. Uh, I learned so much. I'm not going to drown you with stats and facts and numbers now. Um, my particular type and my particular subtype is quite rare. I fit into a 5% category, etc. Um, and there are some fantastic survival statistics around breast cancer now. Uh, there's been some tremendous advances in modern medicine. Um, I'll speak more uh, as to that later. But at the beginning, as I researched and found out information and thought, right, right, where do we get to? Where do we get to with this? I kept looking at statistics and a friend had to remind me, you are not a statistic, that you are actually a story. That, and actually, statistics are no good if you've ended up on, wrong, on the wrong side of them. Statistically, I was too young to get breast cancer. Statistically, I don't have the lifestyle risks associated with breast cancer. 
Statistics only tell part of a story. And as Aslan says to one of the characters in the, the Chronicles of Narnia, I clung hard to the words of Aslan as well as the words of Jesus, no one has told any story but their own, and this is my story. I've decided to share it in the form of 10 things I have learned um, <clears throat> throughout this, this story. Don't worry, some of them are shorter than others. And the first thing I have to be honest and say I learned is that I am weaker than I ever thought possible. When I started telling friends a bit more widely what had happened, um, people were amazing. I just want to say this right there now. Everybody was amazing. Um, I really felt so, so loved. But I remember one of my friends saying to me, oh, do you know, the thing is, I, 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 you know, you are such a strong person and you're going to be amazing. You are going to be kind of like the poster girl for showing people how to handle this. And I know she meant really, really well. And I, I think I kind of know what she was saying. And yet it was a you could see the compliment in it. But you know, I finished or closed down our, our series of messages when I got that and sat in my bed and absolutely howled. I could not stop crying. I'm pretty sure my next door neighbor must have been wondering what on earth was going on. But I really was just howling. And my howl was one of despair because that was me saying to God, I was like, I am not the poster girl for this. I'm really not. I can't, I can't do this. Seriously, you do. You, 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 I mean, Christian bookshops seem to be full of books of people who've overcome illnesses and who can tell amazing stories. And, you know, it's like, well, I just prayed and everything was fine. And I was literally sitting there almost being physically sick at times, shaking, crying. And I was like, man, you picked the wrong poster girl. There's so many other people you could have picked. So I think in those early days, what shocked me, or what I really had to come to, to grips with, was this idea that I was incredibly weak and incredibly vulnerable and incredibly fragile in a way that I really, I really hadn't thought possible. With the benefit of like, you know, all these, these months on now, I can see that actually God was at work in that, in the sense that he let me realize just how weak I was. He let me realize, like, you're not, you're not going to be doing this on your own. You're right, you can't do this. You're going to do it with doctors, you're going to do it with your friends, and you're going to do it with me. So I was weaker than I ever thought possible. I remember early on, too, thinking that my faith was going to be the key to getting through this. And what did that look like? I, I'd started reading around that time. Those of you that know me well know that I'm a huge, huge bookworm. I love my books, you know. If you're lost, stuck, leaning answers, turn to a book. There's always a book that can, can give you a good, a good story or, or give you some help. And I, I thoroughly recommend, I use this to do book reviews as well. So I thoroughly recommend Pete Gregg's Dirty Glory. Hands up if you've read it. I know a few folks have. One, two. You, you really need to read Pete Gregg's Dirty Glory. It's amazing. It's an awesome book. And I started reading my way through it, not at my usual speed, I have to confess, my brain needed time to, to process things. But there's a, there's a chapter in Dirty Glory called Blue Camp 20, where Pete Gregg is sharing about how he was starting a new, new thing. He was in America and looking at starting a new project and really bringing it before God in prayer and saying, well, what's this gonna look like? And realizing that it's in the transition times, the times of challenge, where the priorities we set at those times will determine our route for the rest of our lives. At times of challenge and transition, the priorities we set are going to determine our path. And I was so, so struck by that, that actually I was at a, a time of transition, a time of challenge. And the decisions I made now about my faith, the decisions I made about how hard I went after God, the decisions I made 
about how much I would pray were absolutely going to set the tone for what was left of my life. He also, in that chapter, explores the, the bit, he sort of talks about the bit in Exodus where, where Moses is given the choice. God is saying, right, you know, you, you guys can go ahead into the land. I'll give you everything I say, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses goes, uh-uh, we're, we're not doing that. I can't do that, Lord. What's the point in us going into the land if you don't come with us? If we don't have you, we have nothing. And Pete puts out the possibility, he said, what would you do if, think of all the prayers you pray, when you pray really desperate prayers that you need answered, like a prayer for healing, what would you do if God said, right, I will answer that prayer, but the upshot of me answering it is, you won't know my presence as deeply for the rest of your life. I'll give you what it is you're asking, but you, you won't get my presence. Would you take the answered prayer, or would you say no to the answered prayer for, having, for the sake of having the presence of Jesus with you for the rest of your life. And I remember sitting reading that in bed one morning and, and again, bursting into tears. There were a lot of tears in this story, trust me. Um, I, I burst into tears and I remember involuntarily almost sort of shouting, I choose you because that's what I realized I wanted. My, my most desperate prayer was I really did want to be healed. But actually, if you gave me a choice between would I take healing or would I take the presence of Jesus as like, I've got to choose the presence of Jesus. That's what I've got to choose. No matter how much I might say, oh, I'd really like the healing, please. Within that, of course, is the sense that we know, we know our God is a God who heals. And actually, you can, you can often have both. But I just found that such a profound chapter and such a profound transition moment in that year. Which brings me on to the third thing, which is the place of prayer and what to pray. Because actually, here's the thing, I actually didn't really pray for healing very much. I think at the beginning, I felt quite, I felt quite challenged. I felt quite, well, what, what right do I have to pray for healing? Now, I'm not going to go into the theological aspects of that. I'm sure somebody's sitting going, oh, you have a perfect right, and I will explain to you from chapter and verse in the Bible why you do. Um, but I guess what, what I mean is, I've just, I'm so aware of all the situations we bring before God that desperately need answered prayers. And I thought, well, what, what right do I have that mine would be answered when actually this person's needs answered and that person's need answered? And, and also, I've prayed for friends in the past who've had cancer and they haven't been healed. And do I have the courage to pray for my own healing if, if I might be one of the ones that, that, that isn't healed? I was also hugely challenged. Um, I'm going to recommend another book now. If you haven't read Philip Yancey's book on prayer, it's a very good one. But in Philip Yancey's book on prayer, he's got a bit where he talks about the different ways that different cultures pray. And he talks about the fact that in the West, we are, we're very good at praying. When, when hard times happen, we, we tend to always be praying, Lord, take this away from me. You know, Lord, heal me. Lord, remove this. Don't let me suffer. Lord, take this hard thing away. And he said, and quite often in much more in, in the developing world, in areas where they're, they're living with a lot more in terms of physical hardship, conflict situations, poverty situations, quite often the prayers of the church in those areas of the world are not so much, Lord, take this away from me, but Lord, give me the strength to endure this. And I remember reading that and thinking, wow, that's actually very, very true. How many times has something unpleasant presented itself to us and our default is, oh, take it away. I don't want this. Heal me. Just deal, deal with this. And what would it look like to actually say, okay, give me, give me the strength to endure it rather than remove it for me? 
I think I eventually settled into a space where I realized that so many other people, so many of my church family and so many others around me were praying for my healing that I thought maybe I kind of don't need to in the sense that I'm just going to hand that over. If other people are praying for, for me, then I will pray for the, well, actually, you need to give me the, you need to give me the strength to, to do this. I also found a really useful exercise in the, in the beginning, in the first month or so, I had to go for an awful lot of scans. And anyone who's had these kind of scans knows you can spend like 45 minutes to an hour inside a machine that's beeping at you and doing all kinds of things with a needle in your arm. And that can be quite a scary time. And I learned that actually one of the things that I used to kind of help me cope with the fear there was I knew others were already praying for me at that point, so I didn't need to worry about it. What I could do is I could pray for other people during that time. And actually, it was a wonderfully calming way of getting through scans, was actually working my way through, right, who can I be praying for? It's a wonderful way of, the, the, our minds are incredible. We think, oh, all I'm going to be able to think about is this. But actually, when we focus on something else, it really, the strength to endure is, is something remarkable. So um, I just found that an amazing experience, and I'm very grateful that God, God allowed me to do that, because um, it really did, did help me. I learned about the importance of worship, and I learned about this in the context of falling in love with God a bit more. Again, another, another friend, good friend said to me early on, we were, we were talking, and talking very honestly about, about fears, and talking very honestly about fears of, of dying. Um, and, and I don't want you to think badly of this friend, because they're an awesome friend, and I totally know what they meant by this, and, and they are totally right. Um, but I just, I'm aware, I say this to some people, and they go, they say, what? Um, I said, you know, you can't help but shake that fear of what happens if I die. And they said, oh, but if you die, just think, you get to go meet Jesus. And I was like, I know I should be like, yay! And instead, I'm like, why does that not thrill me? Why does that scare me? Um, and that was, that was really challenging. That was a really, that was a hard conversation to have with myself of, is, is that true? I'm, I'm pretty certain I'm not the only person. I'm pretty certain. I'm, I'm relatively confident in a room this size that there's um, other people kind of going, yeah, I've, al I've kind of always wondered that too, and I don't want to confess it. Because it feels like the worst thing a Christian could possibly confess, right? I mean, it's our absolute dream to be with Jesus for all eternity, isn't it? So when someone says, oh, just think, you'll get there, you think, uh, not just yet. <laughs> could I have a bit longer, please? And, and I did. I found myself in a bargaining thing of, oh, I, w I will enjoy that one day, Lord, but think of all I could do if you left me here for another 40, 45, 50 years. <laughs> Those of you that are my age are kind of going, yeah, right, you're not, you're not getting that long. <laughs> but that was a challenge to me. It's like, if I'm not thrilled by the thought of eternity with God, eternity with Jesus, then what, what, what's lacking in my relationship with God? And actually, that's been really useful it's been really useful to examine, well, what do I have to do to sort this out? There's been part of my conversations with God is like, okay, you need to get me to a place where actually I just feel like I cannot live without you. You need to get me to a place where when I talk of heaven, I feel a soaring of joy in my stomach and in my heart. And I actually feel like, yeah, okay, no matter what happens to my body, everything's going to be okay. And whilst I'm not going to stand here and say, yep, so it's all totally fine now, I will say I've started to get glimpses of what that looks like enough to make me want to go after it even more and even harder and in whatever time is left to, to kind of say, okay, this is it. How do we fall more in love with Jesus? How do we fall more in love with God? And one of the clearest, easiest ways I discover is, is through worship. Uh, and again, for those of you that already knew that are sitting there probably going, yeah, 
yeah, you worship God and you begin to fall in love with God. But it's, it's true. And, and again, through being able to join in with worship here at SGT, I mean, I sat up in the balcony when I had to stay away from everyone through, through chemo. Um, I, I sat up there and was still able to join part of the worship. And worship does soften your heart and change your heart. Spending time worshiping with other Christians is something that there is fresh revelation of God in it. So the place of worship in my journey was, was huge. Worship leads to a space where you can encounter God. And encountering the presence of God leads you into falling in love with him more deeply. I've mentioned the, the place of fear that, that I was so scared at many times. And that, that continued to be through, true throughout my treatment. And actually now my treatment's over. Fear still rises. It's, it's ugly but understandable head um, in my life. But one of the things I learned early on, one of the effective tools for tackling fear was gratitude. Um, the idea, we're, I think it's, it's gaining some prominence because I think even amongst sort of, you know, secular studies have shown that actually listing things you're thankful for or grateful for are, are a really good way of increasing your happiness. It's a really good way of helping you not focus on the negative in life and go, oh, here are all the good things. So I started doing that a bit more intentionally. And the days where I had that sick tummy feeling, a bit scared feeling, I would go, okay, right, well, what do I have to be thankful for today? And I would, I literally wrote lists sometimes. I would come up with, I would make myself come up with 10 things. And it literally could be as simple as this cup of coffee. This was an awesome cup of coffee and it was lovely to be able to taste it. Coffee was one of the few things I could taste all the way through chemotherapy. I lost virtually the taste for virtually everything apart from coffee and Cadbury's dairy milk, which I'm pretty sure also made it onto my thank you list on at least one occasion. <laughs> but you did, you literally learned to be thankful for the very, very small things, for the night, the, the smile, from somebody that served you in a shop, the opportunity to have a brief conversation with someone, the fact the sun was shining one day. I even tried in one day to be thankful that it was raining, and I really, really hate the rain, but I, I tried to be thankful for all the good things that I knew the rain was doing to, you know, the beautiful uh, green of our countryside. And here's the thing. On those days where I practiced the gratitude, on those days where I made myself be thankful, my fear did calm down. I was able to refocus my mind and able to move on with other things. I learned that gratitude drives out fear. I learned that God's help comes in all forms. Around the fifth session of chemo, which I think was around the beginning of May last year, I really began to struggle mentally to the point where I, I said to people that actually the physical battle was nothing compared to the mental battle. And I had an excellent breast care nurse um, and I had a good conversation with her and she suggested I go and see my GP and I had a good conversation with my GP and the decision was made to put me on an antidepressant called sertraline. I went on it and felt incredibly embarrassed that I'd had to go on it and I actually didn't tell very many people that I had gone on antidepressants because I felt embarrassed, I felt ashamed, and I have to confess, particularly speaking to Christian friends, I felt a little bit like I'd failed. Like there was all this prayer going on for me. I was here in the prayer ministry team each Sunday. So many people, people around the world literally praying for me. I know the, the, the team from my old work, the team in Rwanda were praying for me regularly, the team in Malawi. And I thought, what right do I have to not to not be re responding to this prayer? And, and what right do I have to go on these antidepressants? Is this not a form of failure? Well, I'd now just like to say that's just utter rubbish, isn't it? It is. 
it is. And I know there's enough of you. I can see nods. You're, and I now want to be very open and honest about the fact I went on antidepressants. And actually, I'm still on antidepressants. Because I had got to a place where I really couldn't cope. Um, and what I, my prayer life had dwindled to, Lord, I can't do this. I mean, I literally couldn't pray anything more than, I, I just can't do this. And within about three weeks of being in the antidepressants, I felt like my head rose above water again. I felt like I was able to kind of take a big gasping breath of air and kind of like, oh, I feel like me again. I felt like I was able to laugh at things that I would normally have found funny. I felt that I was able to ask friends, well, how are you doing? What's happening in your life? I felt that I was able to pray again and go, okay, Lord, right, you got to help me with this. And, and what can I be praying for for this person? In short, they helped me feel like me again. And I'm now very convinced, I'm very happy to say that I actually, alongside the chemotherapy, alongside the surgery, alongside the radiotherapy, alongside the Herceptin injections, those antidepressants were part of my breast cancer treatment. And I'm aware we have a huge stigma in the church around mental health issues. And we have a stigma around antidepressants. And part of the reason I know that is when I shared this story at this other church a few weeks ago, I had half a dozen people come up to me after service and say, thank you so much for mentioning that. And I realized once again, it's like, we just don't talk about this enough. We talk as if somehow we have failed, that this is a failure of our faith. And it, instead it isn't. Instead, it's one of the many tools that God has provided to support us and help us when it is needed. So I learned that God's help comes in many forms. I had a good introduction in what not to say to people. And some of you have heard me say this kind of thing before, so I'm not actually going to go into it um, in too much depth. Um, you probably know by now my thoughts on people saying to you, well, just be positive. Uh, if you don't, just a bit, never, never just say, just be positive, because it, it gets those of us who are going through a cancer journey a little bit. Um, it's like, do you know, if positivity could cure it, I would, I would go for it. But it, it, last I checked, positivity is not a cure for cancer. And the problem is when you are having a down day, when you're having a day when you're struggling and you're feeling really hard, and someone says, well, just be positive, it actually adds to your feelings that you're failing by not doing it. One of the things I found really helpful was knowing when you're having a tough time and a friend said, how are you? And you shared, well, actually, this is a bit tricky today. The people that say, that sounds really hard. How can I be of help today? Or would it help if I just listened? Being heard, having your pain heard, the other person acknowledging there's nothing they can actually do, but they are there, they've heard it and they're listening is one of the most powerful things we can do. And I've had people say to me, I've had people contact me since and say, listen, my, my, you know, my cousin's just been diagnosed, what, what can I do or say? And that's one of the things I would share is, do you know what? You, you just need to listen, hear where they're at, because actually being heard is hugely important to somebody who's in a dark place. I learned how utterly, utterly amazing our National Health, health Service is in this country. I know it is not without its problems. And I know some of us have had bad experiences with NHS. We, it is a system that is incredibly under pressure financially and, and people-wise. But again, having worked for an international development charity and knowing what is available in countries that I visited, such as Ethiopia and Nepal and Cambodia, time and time again, I thought of the women I'd met in my travels. And I thought, well, what would they do when they found a lump in their breast? Even assuming they could get to a hospital they would need the money to pay for treatment. And one of the things I, I read in the BBC News app actually a few months ago was that Uganda just got its first working radiotherapy machine. One radiotherapy machine 
for the entire country of Uganda, which has, what, about 20 million people, a population of around 20 million in Uganda. Um, you know, so, yeah, we have an NHS that's hugely under pressure, but, oh, my goodness, thank God for our NHS. They, they really have done a wonderful job and are doing a wonderful job. And it's the nurses in particular. I'm so grateful for the skill of oncologists and surgeons, but the compassion and kindness that I came across with the nursing staff really touched me in a way that just, just blew me away. They, they really were absolutely wonderful. I don't want to resort to cliches and say angels, because um, the nurses I know would be like, <laughs> not angels. I was like, no, but do you know what? They practice compassion and kindness, and I experienced that, and I was hugely, hugely grateful for it. I think I forgot to say at the beginning, when I was talking about being on a mountain path, not knowing what was around each, each corner, Initially, when with the breast cancer di diagnosis, I think what I felt was I'd rounded a corner and there was a dark cave mouth ahead of me and I was being asked to go into the cave. And I was standing there at the entrance going, I don't want to go into that cave. I don't want to go in there. And felt God kind of saying, I know you don't, but I'm going in with you. So I'm now at the end of active treatment. I finished in, in March. I get my first annual mammogram later this week. I'm now coming out the cave, or I've come out the cave rather, back blinking into the sunlight to a world that looks a little different than it did before, but is still recognizable as the world. They never use the word cured in a cancer diagnosis. I don't know if you knew that or not. I didn't really realize it. I've, I've heard it said. People kind of go, oh, so, so is that you cured now? And you realize they don't say that. They never say that because cancer's a nasty disease and it's sneaky and mutations in cells can happen anywhere at any time. Around 30% of breast cancer patients will go on to develop what they call secondary breast cancer where it spreads to other parts of your body and becomes incurable. And I learned early on that getting to the point where you're declared no evidence of disease is only the first stage because thereafter you have to stay clear of being in that 30%. And there's no guarantee they can give you and nothing you can do that would prevent that happening. That's been hard to live with. But again, that's something I've had to take to God. And it's something I've had other support with too, including a, a session of cognitive behavioral therapy. And in fact, I've kind of combined I've combined my prayers to God and the cognitive behavioral therapy. And I've gone, okay. So one of the things I do when I get overwhelmed or I fear a, a thought about recurrence or when I get a, a headache and, you know, I used to just get a headache, pop two paracetamol, drink some water and go, oh, there we go. Now I get a headache and I think, oh, do I have a brain tumor? And it might sound extreme, but you know, this is what you live with post-diagnosis. I still do take paracetamol, drink some water and say, it's probably nothing. <laughs> but on the days when that fear bubbles up, I've learned to try and tackle it by going, okay, yeah, this might happen. But it isn't happening today. And instead, what, what do you want from me today, God? What does today look like? What should I be doing? And it's been a good way of helping refocus my attention. People keep asking me now, now that I'm at this stage, I'm drawing to a close. This is, this is point 10, 10 things I've learned. People keep saying, what are your plans now? 
because people knew I had a plan. The plan was to finish my job at Tier Fund uh, at the end of March last year. The plan was then to take a couple of months off. It was to go to Australia, New Zealand, visit friends. It was then to take some time chilling. And then the plan was to get a new job. And as I said, I'd been excited about what that might be, but I had no clue what it was. I was just going to wait and see. So insofar as I ever do plans, not really a plan person, it felt like a plan. People are asking me now, understandably, what are your plans now? I have no plans. And I've been rethinking the language around plans because I thought, do you know, you can have a plan and then it gets sideswiped. Sideswiped by a lump in the breast. Sideswiped by an unexpected redundancy. Sideswiped by a relationship breakup. Sideswiped by falling into debt. Sideswiped by some other form of illness. Our plans can get broken. And we often talk as Christians about what's, what's God's plan for our lives. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that language. Why would we talk about God's plan for our life when actually we don't really know what God's plan is for our life? We can talk about trying to discern God's will for our lives, but how can we know what God's plan is? It's not like we get an email or Google Calendar alerts with, oh, so on Wednesday you should be doing this. Is plan really the right language? Let me just say, this is my own personal ruminations here. If you are happy using the term plan and finding God's plan for your life, you carry on going ahead doing it. I'm just saying that for me, I started to think plan is the wrong language for me here because I don't know what God's plans are. I've got no way of knowing. But what started to occur to me was that I could know what God's purpose was for me. And that actually I was okay not having a plan as long as I'm pretty certain what my purpose is. And that's, I kind of guess, to say where I am right now. I don't have a close to this story. This journey's ongoing. I don't also, I have to say, have a, a purpose statement. Somebody asked me that yesterday. They said, so what is your new purpose statement? I was like, I haven't got there yet. I've just thought it's a good idea to have a purpose. I mean, in my own head, I'm kind of thinking through, well, actually, it needs to be about serving the kingdom of God. It needs to be about, I want to I do everything that, that God asks of us. I want to be salt. I want to be light. I want to be part of this fellowship, this church. I want to see Glasgow flourish by the, you know, the, the preaching of his word, the praising of his name. Those are all things that I think pr fit pretty well into a purpose. So I'm working on it. But yeah, I don't have it in a 30-second elevator pitch yet. <laughs> I have no plan, but I'm certain there's a purpose. And that's okay. That'll do for now. I just want to read, just as I close this bit, I want to read some words of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think they're going to come up on the screen. So this, this has long been one of my favorite parts um, of the Bible. I've loved the imagery in this for a long time. And again, it felt very, very apt last year when, as I said, I spent so much of the year feeling very vulnerable and very fragile. And I was reminded of this passage where it speaks, Paul speaks about the treasure we have, but the fact we have it in fragile clay jars. We are the fragile clay jars, which isn't to say that we can't contain great treasure. And God will use us despite our fragility. Um, but I just, I loved thinking about this and meditating on this. And it's set within a passage where actually Paul is looking at our bodies and reminding us that this, you're not promised this forever. I mean, there is a resurrection body, you know, but it's, 
it's not going to be this one, or it's not going to be this one with its scars and its bits cut out of it, and its, its bits that looked less than perfect, and, you know, so I'm just going to share these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, reading from verse 6 initially. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. And then from verse 16, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Amen. That's truly the hope we have in Jesus. I want to give us some time now. I appreciate, as I said at the beginning, I know this can be a difficult journey to hear about, and none of us is untouched by illness and by suffering. So I actually just wanted to take some time before we go into closing worship to offer up some time for silence and reflection and some time for prayer maybe for yourselves, maybe for people you know who are ill, for people that, that need God to be closer in their lives, that need God's help and strength and endurance. So we're just going to do this around our tables. Laura's going to come up and quietly play for us. Um, so there's no awkward silence. Some of us feel more comfortable with silence than others, but Laura will play quietly in the background. And in your tables, you can pray together as a table out loud if you wish, if you'd feel more comfortable just sitting quietly in your own space and praying for people you know, that's absolutely fine. This is not a prescriptive time of prayer. It's just to give us all time to be thinking about those that we need to be lifting up before God for their journeys and whatever place they're at just now, for whatever it is they need. You know, we've been celebrating today the fact that God, God hears our prayers, that he answers prayer, that when we ask for the strength to endure, he does give it. When we ask for the ability to worship him in hard times, he does give it. So let's just take five minutes in prayer and I will draw it to close with a short reflection in prayer. <laughs> 